The story is told of a small town that had an Easter pageant every year, and the pageant began with a passion play, and uh, they had someone playing Christ carrying the cross uh, down the city streets, and the crowd lined it and jeered and cheered. One year, the people leading the play decided to pick one of the rougher characters in town to play Jesus. They thought uh, it might do some good for him, and maybe some of Jesus would rub off on him as he carried the cross. Much to their surprise, he agreed to be Jesus in this play. And so he did his job. He carried his cross, began to go down the streets of the city. They lined uh, the town, and they cheered, and they jeered. And one uh, short guy, little man, really got into it, and he was really getting kind of abusive to the man carrying the cross. And in fact, as the man carrying the cross got close to him, he reached out and he spit on the man carrying the cross, at which point Jesus stopped pointed at the little guy and said, I'll be back for you after the resurrection. (laughs) You know, sometimes something on a smaller scale happens like that in the church. We all gather and celebrate on Easter and we talk about the power of the resurrection over sin and death. And then the next day or the next week, we kind of go back to life the way it was before the resurrection. We're not unlike... uh, a parable that I read about a shopkeeper. And the shopkeeper had a sign in his window that said, Pants Press Here. And so with great excitement, one man who was in the town saw that sign, went home and got all of his dirty clothes and went into the shop and put them on the counter. And the shopkeeper said, What are you doing? And he said, Well, you know, I brought my pants for you to clean and press. And he said, We don't do that. We're just a sign shop. That was just an example in our window. We don't do things. We only talk about doing them. And the author of the parable, Soren Kierkegaard, said a lot of times church is like that. We talk about the power of the resurrection. We talk about new life, but we don't really do it. We don't really do it. And, and it's, it's unfortunate because that hurts the witness of the faith and the church. You'll probably remember the line from the uh, atheist philosopher Nietzsche who once said he could believe in Christ if it weren't for the Christians. We've heard about our generation, the younger generation today, that is very spiritual and yet not very inclined to be a part of a church. And one of the things you find out in talking to them is there's a, a fear among them in general. And the fear is not that they will come to church and be changed into someone different. The fear, rather, is that they will come to church and not be changed. For a lot of them, the power of Christ is kind of the last hope that they have in their life. And, and they don't want to come here and find that that hope is empty. But as they look at me and you and they see unresurrected lives, what are they to think? It hurts our faith when we're just the same as before the resurrection. It hurts my own life when I'm just the same as I was before the resurrection. When when I'm unable to say the right thing at the right time or do the right thing at the right time. To do what love requires when I'm unable to do that. That hurts my own life and then I began to feel bad about myself and wonder if I'm even a Christian After all, there's a great need in our world for real life change. And the good news that I want to share with you during this Easter season is that real life change is possible. Real life change is possible. And Exhibit A is the Apostle Paul himself who went from being a man who killed people because of their faith to a man who was willing to die for faith in Christ. He went from being a persecutor to becoming a martyr. And if you pulled him aside and said, Paul, how did this happen? How did that kind of change take place in your life? I think this is what he would tell you because this is what he told the Galatians in chapter 2, verse 20. He said this. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Paul had to change, and he would say it all started with a death. It all started with the crucifixion of myself, dying with Christ. When you think about it, resurrection's prerequisite is always death. Nothing can be resurrected unless it dies first. Maybe this is what Jesus had in mind when one day he looked at the crowd following him. He said, now if any of you really want to keep following me, he said, you're going to have to pick up your cross and carry it and deny yourself. Jesus knew that the path to resurrected living always went through the cross or through what he called self-denial. John Calvin, the great Protestant reformer, was once asked if he could summarize the Christian faith in two words. And he said, I can do that. Self-denial. Self-denial. That is the key to the resurrected life. But if you're like me and you think about terms like death and self-denial and carrying your cross, they don't really pump you up. They don't get very excited. When I picture myself carrying the cross, I just picture it kind of just dragging behind me. And oh, one step after another. And how much longer do I have to do this? I don't get a sense of power. I don't get a sense of joy. And if you're like me, maybe it's helpful to think of self-denial and crucifixion in slightly other terms that have the same profound truth, but just pictured a different way. And that's what I want to do with you this morning. I want to say to you that the key to the resurrected life, which we call self-denial, could also be termed surrender. Think of self-denial as surrender. Now, when I think about surrender, when I kind of look at the history of the world, and I think of surrender usually comes in one of two forms. The first kind of surrender is that you've been beaten down and just overwhelmed. You've been defeated. And in order to stop the bleeding, and just so things don't get any worse, you go ahead, and it's not really a voluntary choice. You're forced into it, and you surrender. And you wave the flag. And so Lee, after four bitter years of war, comes to Grant at Appomattox Courthouse. And after bitter years of World War I, the Germans come to France and they surrender. But that sort of surrender is not because you hope for something better. That sort of surrender is forced on you so that things do not get worse. And that sort of involuntary surrender, it always seems to leave wounds that fester. I mean, we can see wounds from our own civil war 140 years later still festering and coming on the airwaves of our country this past week. It's still there. Nazi Germany was able, the Nazi party was able to make great progress because of the wounds that festered because of that involuntary surrender and the harsh terms that were forced upon the German people after the First World War. That's one form of surrender, but it never seems to really get us very far. There is, I would suggest you, a second form of surrender. This is a voluntary surrender that says, I'm trading up. I'm going to submit to this because that's a lot better than the old way used to be. And so when the soldiers come as liberators into a country like Iraq or other places, many people join them, not because they've been beaten down into it, but because they see in these liberators a hope for a better future, a hope for a way of life that they have not enjoyed. And they willingly choose to trade in one ruler for another. They voluntarily surrender so that their lives might be better. This is the kind of surrender that took place in the Old Testament when David was king over two of the twelve tribes of Israel. David uh, had obviously God's hand upon him and it became so evident to the other ten tribes that they demanded that David be their king. 
They came to him and they said, be our king. They voluntarily submitted to him, surrendered to him, not because they'd been beaten down, not because they hoped to stop the bleeding, but because they knew that a future of peace and prosperity was possible for them because of this God-ordained leader. That is the kind of surrender that I'm talking about. That's the kind of self-denial to which I'm referring this morning. It is a trading up. It is a trading up so that our lives will, in fact, be better. In fact, when I think about it, I think about there are three entities to which you could surrender generally in this life. Uh, to use the, uh, the metaphor from the Civil War, there are kind of three places you could turn in your sword. And one place is you can surrender to yourself. You can surrender to all the desires and plans you have for the life that you think you ought to have and that you ought to live. And you could say to yourself, self, you are smart enough and you are big enough and you are bad enough and you can deliver what it is I need in this life. And you can make that move. You can surrender to everything that you want and everything the way you want it. But generally, I think you overestimate your abilities at delivering the life that is possible for you in this life, and you completely overestimate your abilities to deliver any sort of life past this life. It's not really the best of all moves. I remember the wry observation that George Bernard Shaw made years ago when he said, often the worst advice you can give somebody is be yourself. Because apart from the resurrected power of Christ, they're just going to make life a bigger mess. Friday we did the funeral in here for uh, a pastor, uh, Charles Geisler. And I remember a retreat that Chuck and I were doing together some years ago. And in the middle of addressing a group of men, I'll never forget this line, I wrote it down. This is what he said. Often when I am with myself, I am not in the best of company. Sometimes we overestimate ourselves. But a right observation of ourselves tells us that we don't have the power to deliver the life that we're intended to have. Surrendering to ourselves is not usually the best move. Now, others don't surrender to themselves. They choose to surrender to the others, to the world around them. Whether the world is on Madison Avenue or the, the world is their neighbor, they surrender uh, their view of what life ought to be like to the people who are around them. And you can do that. Many people do it. We used to use the phrase when I was growing up of being a part of the rat race. And, and that meant you just submitted like everyone else surrendered to the way everyone else was living life and you just tried to live it a, a, a little bit uh, better or quicker than they did. But you've probably heard the observation that the problem with the rat race is even if you win it, you're still a rat. You know, you still surrendered to others to determine who you are and what your life's about. Or another way we talked about it was when we were trying to keep up with the Joneses. We'd look to them for what our life ought to be like never stopping to realize that the Joneses are probably more messed up than we were anyway. And we were trying to take cues from them about what a healthy or happy or meaningful life would be. To the surrender to others makes as little sense as surrendering to ourselves. Hence St. Francis' um, advice to his followers. He said, you must wear the world loosely as a garment that only touches you lightly here and there in a few places. We have to be in the world. But we don't want to be so much of the world that our values uh, completely come from others that we have surrendered to them. So, to whom do we surrender? I hope by now the answer is obvious. It's the answer that Paul gave. Surrendering starts with giving our own will over to God and to say, God, your will should be done, not mine. That my desires are not preeminent 
in this life. It is what you desire that is preeminent. And it seems to me it has some real distinct advantages that I've shared with you before. And that is when you think about the nature of God, God knows a whole lot more than I do. Including God knows me better than I know myself. And God knows what my deepest needs are and knows how to meet them. And so I yield to a God with superior knowledge. I yield to a God with a superior power. God can do more for me than I can even do for myself. I might be able to do a few things in this life, but they won't be right. And I am powerless when it comes to the life to come. That I must trust to a power that is greater than mine. And God is more powerful. But I trust this God who has more knowledge and power than I have because, quite frankly, God loves me more than I love myself. And so whatever it is best for me, God will work with that knowledge and power to bring that about when I have surrendered to God. The advantages of surrendering to God far outweigh the advantages of surrendering to ourselves or surrendering to other people. It is, in the best sense of the word, trading up. The late missionary Jim Elliott put it this way. He said, a person's not really a fool when they give up what they can't keep to gain what they could never lose. And so if I surrender to God in this life, to a life that I can't hold on to anyway past the grave, I gain not only abundant life in this life, but I gain the life that is to come. It is the best of all possible surrenders. It is the sweetest surrender. It is the best victory to surrender to God. And that's where resurrected living begins. Now let me just say two words about how you might do this. Just two observations. The first thing is, I think surrendering to God is a daily decision. I really do. Before I get out of bed in the morning, the the first thing I say to God is, God, this is your day not mine. And it's not my will that counts. It is your will. What is it that you want done today? I want to seek that and I want to do it. And as a part of that, I tell God, and so I'm giving up control of this day. This is your day. I'm giving control to you. And as a result, I'm not going to try to control the traffic on 410, which lanes are closed and which are open. I'm not going to try to control what my children are doing at college or or in school. I'm not going to try to control my co-workers. I am submitting to you And I know that whatever comes my way, you will have worked it for the best. So I give up control of myself and of others to start the day. That's a daily decision. And then secondly, I would just remind you of this advice from Dr. Henry Cloud, a Christian counselor. You won't find it in one Bible verse, but I believe this is biblical. When he says, for life change to happen, three things are always required, you must remember. The first is time. Real life change doesn't happen in an instant. Now, we have had many examples of people for whom we have prayed and others have prayed and they found a physical change immediately or they found help in some immediate way. And and I'm grateful to God for that. But generally, in matters of emotional and spiritual health, change comes very slowly. It takes time and it generally takes more time than you and I think it will take. Because it takes a lot of time to become a different person. It will take time. It will take, Cloud says, truth. It'll take some honest feedback. We get honest feedback in prayer. We get honest feedback by comparing ourselves to Scripture. We get honest feedback from a few mature Christian friends who can let us know if we're really surrendering or we're just surrendering to ourselves. And then finally, he said, it takes not only time and truth, but it takes the grace and the love of God and Jesus Christ. Now that's where we'll turn our attention next week.